This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by the Government of Japan. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm David Ignatius, a columnist at the Post. Forgive our technical delay this morning. Today we're going to discuss the new global economy. Joining us first is the International Monetary Fund's Managing Director, Kristalina Georgieva. Kristalina, welcome back to the Washington Post. Thanks, Thank thanks for coming much. today. Thank you for having me. So I want to jump right, right in. Um, in October, your economists at the IMF were worrying about a recession uh, and its global effects, but your forecast has changed and become more optimistic somewhat. Tell us what's happened since October that makes you more confident. The uh, global economy, and in particular the U.S. economy, uh, have proven to be more resilient to the uh, tightening of monetary policy than we anticipated. Conventional wisdom says if interest rates go up, then labor markets weaken, growth slows down, and there is risk of recession. Uh, What we have seen uh, is that the labor market remained quite tight and uh, growth in the last quarter of 23 exceeded expectations. We are now into 24, poised for soft landing. In other words, inflation gradually going back to target without triggering a recession. And that is very good news. Uh, We have to recognize that two factors contributed. The first one is supply chains functioning again. That was a big problem in uh, most of the last couple of years. And the second one is the determination of central banks to hold interest rates high so inflation would moderate. And very important, inflation expectations will be well anchored. But there are two issues that we need to be uh, very mindful of. The first one is that, yes, growth continues this year, and we even slightly upgraded our projections. We now expect 3.1% for 2024. But this is very weak by historical standards. We are projecting 3% this year, next year, the, the year after against an average growth of 3.8% in the decade before the pandemic. Two, there are geopolitical factors that continue to impact projections for the world economy. And uh, already geopolitical tensions have led to some fragmentation that is making the growth prospects of the world bleaker than they would have been otherwise. So we'll, we'll come back to your theme of fragmentation, which has been an important one for you and your colleagues at the IMF. But I want to just unpack um, the growth numbers. As you say, your current more optimistic projection of 3.1% is well below the average over the last 20 years of of 3.8% annual growth. And I'm wondering whether you see a period of secular stagnation, to use that uh, phrase, uh, that's developing in the global economy. And what, other than this fragmentation that we'll come to, might explain what's going on? Well, uh, what is going on is uh, something that... uh before the pandemic was with us, and now it has returned in, in, in full uh, fledged. And it is low productivity combined with some popular unrest, people not feeling happy about their uh, conditions. Uh, the low productivity uh, problem is the one that holds uh, growth low. Uh, and in that context, uh, there is a bright spot on the economic a horizon called artificial intelligence, if we manage to bring the benefits of of artificial intelligence in the workplace, that may be the boost of productivity we have been uh, hoping for. And if it is done 
without increasing inequality, which David has been a big problem of the last couple of years, then we may have less people on the street in, in many, many uh, countries. So uh, that is a set of issues that, that we are very much concentrated on at the IMF. We actually identified an index of AI preparedness. We developed it so we can rank countries and see who is doing well, who is not. And the uh, second uh, aspect of uh, what is, what is uh, uh, happening uh, that is uh, making these projections not so, not so great is that uh, we are not able to take full advantage of division of labor globally. Uh, and so we are also seeing unusually high level of divergence in economic fortunes. Some countries, countries doing really well, but many others falling even further behind. And that adds to tensions uh, in our world. So, Kristalina, uh, I want to ask you about uh, supply chain uh, costs and the role that they're playing. We've all been following the attacks by the Houthis in Yemen on sh shipping in the Red Sea. Uh, that's had a, a, a significant impact on insurance rates and global shipping rates. Uh, could you describe what uh, larger effect that has on the global economy? And I want to add a, an additional question. Is what we're seeing now with the diversion of some ship traffic from danger areas, the resulting higher costs, is that a snapshot of the new normal in the world where we're just going to have uh, uh, upsetting factors like the Houthis firing missiles or some other development that the world, world economy is just going to have to cope with? Uh, let me start with the uh, immediate uh, problem that uh, comes from the attacks of the Houthis uh, in the Red Sea and how that uh, impacts traffic in the uh, Suez uh, Canal. Uh, we monitor the impact uh, on a virtually daily basis. And what I can say is that uh, in January this year, vis-a-vis -vis January last year, it is almost half less traffic through the Suez Canal. What does it mean? It means ships are taking 3,200 miles longer travel that adds nine days. And as you said, insurance costs are going up. For now, this has implications, but not of the magnitude uh, that would significantly derail growth projections for the world economy. Uh, the impact is more localized. It is the most severe for the country that relies on revenues from the Suez Canal, on Egypt. They're losing $100 million plus per month uh, because of uh, uh, what is going on. Uh, and of course, uh, uh, it adds a bit pressure, uh, of, of pressure on uh, prices. Not yet to a point that I would say our projections for inflation globally are going to be corrected upwards, but it is a signal of the second part of your question. We are in a more shock-prone world. And that means uh, that surprises of this kind, either because of uh, wars or because of climate impact. Let's remember that the Panama Canal is also in trouble there because of drought that has led to uh, reducing the flow through the canal. And this more shock-prone world means that we have to be in better position to face these repetitive shocks. And that takes me to, to maybe the most important point I would make on your show today. We learned a critical lesson over these last years, that countries with strong fundamentals that have built buffers during good times withstand shocks better, the same way people with strong immune systems handled the uh, uh, COVID pandemic. And right now, globally, buffers are exhausted and fiscal authorities have this unenviable 
job of having to tighten and build buffers at a time when the fight against inflation means growth prospects are softening. And this is happening when half of the world is going to vote, particularly difficult time for that kind of necessary, critically uh, necessary, I would say, uh, decisions. So that's a very powerful description of our shock-prone economy, to use your phrase, and your call for additional buffers uh, is important. I want to ask you to be more specific. What are the kinds of buffers that you, as the managing director of the IMF, think are needed, uh, and how should countries begin to go about building them? Well, uh, number one, uh, countries need to be uh, disciplined in uh, collecting uh, revenues. Uh, to have tax systems that are fair, functional, where loopholes are eliminated and the flow of revenues uh, is uh, predictable, uh, sound over time. Second, uh, countries need to be very disciplined in terms of their spending uh, habits. Uh, we have uh, still uh, been uh, exercised in using subsidies uh, that are harmful, that are uh, in the case of, for example, fossil subsidies slowing down a shift of our energy mix uh, towards a greener economy. Uh, and we have the, uh, uh, in many, many cases, the lack of discipline of prioritizing investment in productivity and future growth. I will give you one example, investment in human capital. It is in a world where technological advancements are so fast, where artificial intelligence is defining our future, critical to invest from early age throughout the lifetime and then provide support for reskilling that would make people able to contribute and also to support their families in a fast changing world. Uh, and we look around the world and we see uh, quite a uh, difference in the quality of that investment. Investment in digital infrastructure, paramount for success in the new economy we are already uh, uh, defined uh, by. Uh, investment in basic infrastructure that allows the flow of goods and people uh, to be uh, efficient and effective. So these kinds of public investments, they are critical for competitiveness and they're critical for growth. Not always this spending is well prioritized uh, or uh, sufficiently efficient. Uh, what we offer from the IMF to our members is a lot of technical support for high quality tax uh, systems and high quality public uh, spending. Uh, so we can build these buffers I'm talking about, in other words, have the financial capacity and the smarts to use it uh, that makes us uh, uh, stronger in a more shock-prone world. So two, two final questions about this shock-prone world. Is the United States, with its ever-growing deficits and, and, and debt burden as a percentage of its GDP, an example of a country that has insufficient buffers in your judgment? Well, the United States uh, has this uh, privilege of uh, providing to the rest of the world the uh, uh, means of exchange, universal means of exchange, the dollar. And that puts the United States in a, in a privileged uh, position. Uh, and in addition to that, the United States has very deep capital markets that make it very attractive for others to bring their money here. Uh, this being said, uh, it is important for the US as well to be uh, fiscally disciplined. I must say, uh, when the US spent money over the last years to boost growth, to boost uh, demand and through demand growth, it helped not only itself, it helped the rest of the world uh, which was badly in need of more growth, more, uh, more prosperity. But 
like everywhere, when we look at the uh, uh, U.S. Uh, public spending, uh, we think that uh, uh, there is space uh, in the U.S. To, to eliminate some of the loopholes I talked about, and there is space for the U.S. Uh, to think about uh, how public spending can be done with more discipline. And, and finally on this subject, do you think that financial markets are underpricing the risk of the shock-prone economy that you described? I think uh, financial markets uh, uh, have been uh, quite uh, uh, positive these last uh, years. There is a reason for that, and it is technological advancements and the ability to write on those advancements. Uh, we see the enthusiasm around uh, new sectors of the economy, and I would highlight two, green, the green economy and the digital uh, economy. So there is fundamentally a good reason why there is optimism about the future. But I am so much with you. I think that we are not yet recognizing that uh, we have to learn to think of the unthinkable and then recognize that some, some additional buffers in the world and one that is uh, particularly thinning these days, the buffer of international cooperation, face these risks together uh, and by the way, uh, uh, David, the IMF is actually an institution that is to be a buffer for the collective. Uh, in the last uh, years, we have injected a trillion dollars in the world economy to help smooth the impacts of these uh, shocks. So that kind of acting domestically and acting internationally uh, is uh, what I believe can help us to do better uh, and, and, you know, protect, protect ourselves, our families, our communities, our future. So in the time we have remaining, I want to turn to the theme that you mentioned at the outset of fragmentation uh, in the global economy. Uh, in December, the IMF's first uh, deputy managing director, Gita Gopinath, said, and I'm quoting her here, the world economy is on the brink of a second Cold War that could annihilate progress made since the collapse of the Soviet Union. And she accelerated that, uh, excuse me, attributed that to accelerating fragmentation, a theme that you mentioned earlier and that you often talk, talk about. Explain to us what your concerns are about fragmentation. And do you share the view of your deputy uh, that we're on the brink of a second Cold War in terms of of this fragmentation? Well, uh, uh, let me start with uh, fragmentation. It is already with us. Uh, just to give you one example, trade restrictions in uh, 2017, 500, then 2019, 1,000, last year, 3,000. This is putting the brakes on growth that we feel because, as I said in the beginning, we have the lowest, uh, uh, the weakest growth in, in decades. Uh, what we see is also technological decoupling taking place. And that means that the costs of achieving technological pro progress are going to go up because we are not sharing the benefits of discoveries broadly. Let me be very uh, clear. Some additional attention to security of supplies is necessary. We learn from COVID, from the war in Ukraine. We need to have more attention paid to security of supplies and therefore some redundancy, some extra costs are unavoidable. But we can do it smartly, being thoughtful about the consequences of uh, decisions. Uh, and uh, if you do it smartly, then the uh, impact uh, on our future would be less. I lived in the first Cold War on the other side of the Iron Curtain. And David, I say that to everybody, for those of us there, it was really cold. Uh, 
if we if we look at today's world, we are not quite yet at that point that we were in the years uh, of the first Cold War. But we should be mindful that if we get there, uh, there would be uh, quite severe uh, consequences, uh, including on the ability of the world to have shared democratic uh, values. The most difficult and uh, uh, forever impacting part of my life in the uh, Cold War was the reduction freedom, the inability to communicate with the rest of the world and enhance horizon, open up minds, have these Nobel Prize winners uh, that were not there because we were uh, separated. I do not wish it to anyone to be in a world with more uh, restrictions, less freedom, less ability to reach decisions for the good of all of us uh, together. Well, amen, and we take your warning seriously because of your personal experience. We, we have a question from a member of our audience, Tiffany Chung from Pennsylvania, on this uh, subject. She, she asks, are there specific sectors or regions that you believe are more vulnerable to economic fragmentation, and what measures could be taken to mitigate these risks? Uh, excellent question. Uh, let me just uh, uh, jump back in uh, the benefits of the last 30 years of a more integrated global economy. Uh, what has happened as a result is the world economy tripled. Who benefited the most? Emerging markets and developing economies, they quadrupled. But rich countries doubled, they also benefited. Who is going to be the biggest loser of a fragmented world? It would be the poor countries and it would be the poor people even in richer countries. Uh, when we look at the uh, impact already, we see parts of uh, Africa, because of that geopolitical tension, the fragmentation economic, but also uh, geopolitical fragmentation, uh, we see countries left out on their own and they make bad decisions. There were 10 coups or attempted coups in Africa in the last uh, years. Uh, we also uh, recognize uh, that there, there are some benefits. For example, uh, we have seen this reshoring of production, bringing some closer to where the consumers are. Uh, Mexico is a country that is benefiting from the relocation of supply uh, chains. Uh, so there are winners, but they are also losers. And why I worry about the developing world? Because we are already seeing developing countries falling further behind. And that is bad for their people, but it is also very bad for stability and security in the world. So, uh, Madam Managing Director, uh, thank you for a look at our global economy from the Houthis in the Red Sea to uh, financial uh, boardrooms on, on Wall Street. Um, very helpful uh, summary. Thank you for joining us again on Thank Washington you. Post Live. So please uh, stay with us for our next interview in this program, which will be coming soon as we continue to look at the new global economy. The following segment was produced and paid for by Washington Post Live event sponsored. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. Hi, I'm Jean Meserve. We have taken a look at the global economy, but now let's narrow the focus and talk specifically about Japan, one of the world's largest economies and one that's been working aggressively to increase foreign investment. Joining me is Keiko Honda. She's an adjunct professor at Columbia mm -hmm. University's School of Public and International Affairs. She's former CEO of the Multilateral Investment Guarantee Agency, an arm of the World Bank. Also joining us is Larry Fink, CEO of BlackRock, the world's largest asset manager. Keiko, let me start with you. How do you assess the current state of the Japanese economy and outside interest in investing in Japan? Hi, Japan's stock market is currently experiencing its strongest performance in the last 30 years. 
driven by improved GDP growth, rising wages, enhanced corporate governance, the very modified codes, and social stock exchanges push for PBL improvements. Historically, Japan has a strong commitment to the rule of law. The yen as a major currency is in concern of transfer and conversion risk. The Tokyo Stock Exchange covered diverse industry providing ample liquidity as of March 2023. More than 30% of Japanese listed stock were owned by non-Japanese investors. Then, in addition, the revised ONISA Wenipon individual saving accounts introduced in January 2024 is expected to attract more Japanese retail investors to the capital markets. That's the situation right now. Akeko, the Japanese government has been working on a series of policies to become a leading asset management center. On December 13th of 2023, the government presented a specific policy plan centered on reforming asset management companies and asset owners. What kind of impact do you expect that to have on the Japanese economy in the future? The recent policy plan to promote Japan as a leading asset management center aims to overhaul the investment management chain involving various stakeholders, mm -hmm. as we mentioned, so not only asset managers, but also asset owners, retail investors, corporations, and other capital market participants. Prime Minister Kishida personally commits to driving these reforms to position Japan as attractive destination for the investors. Furthermore, multiple municipalities are planning to establish special zones for financial and asset management businesses, offering additional incentives. Tokyo Stock Exchange has mandated, in addition, simultaneous disclosure of financial results in both English and Japanese for all companies listed in their prime section of the exchange. So I think this will have a very meaningful impact. Um, Larry, how do you evaluate Japan's policy for promoting Japan as a leading asset management center? There's $15 trillion of money in savings. We're talking huge sums of money. And most of that is in cash. And by the, the new policies, as Keiko discussed related to uh, NISA, the NISA changes, the reforms now for the asset management industry is now going to be transforming huge pools of money that's been sitting in the in savings accounts and investing now into the capital markets, into the Japanese equity markets. This is a profound change. Historically, Japanese retail investors kept their, most of their savings in a bank account. I would say this is an expression of fear. You don't keep long-term savings in a bank account unless you're not certain of your future. And the Japanese government, the Kishida government has created these new reforms, as Keiko suggested about the rising equity market. We are now starting to see more hope, more hope that the future, that their children's future is going to be better than it has been over the last 30 years. And this is a profound change. And I believe this is going to deliver um, the confidence to most investors to continue to invest, invest in long-term, transforming savings into long-term investing. And I believe this is going to be critical and that this is a great measurement that there's a renewed hope in, in Japan. And this hope will be transformed into a bolder, bigger capital markets. Having a bolder and larger capital markets will allow the Japanese companies to compete better globally. Having a higher PE allows these companies to perform better. And so I'm quite optimistic on Japan, on these reforms, and this will then now allow new opportunities for international investors to come into Japan. So what are your expectations for future investment in Japan? This past October, BlackRock led with the Kishida government, a group of 
international investors to come to Japan to learn about Japan. By and large, most of these investors were not heavily invested in Japan. They, in, in many cases, they avoided Japan. It was not a good destination for long-term savings. The investors came away with much more enthusiasm, much more confidence that investing in Japan, we're, and we're witnessing that in 2023, we're beginning to see that here in 2024. We're witnessing international investing coming back into Japan. And I believe this is going to be the foundation for years to come, a, a, a Japanese renaissance. There is also great changes within Japan economies. Most, most people will say the demographics of Japan have been a drag. Now with robotics, now with AI, the demographics are going to become an optimistic portion of Japan. Japan is going to be a great destination for the utilization of AI, great destination for robotics. And so Japan will have the ability to grow GDP with better technology. And because Japan is heavily oriented towards technology, and now with the renewed savings from the new NISA accounts, I believe you're going to see more investing, more opportunities uh, for international investors to invest in Japan in the coming years ahead. And when you look at the reimagination of the of globalization, China is a place where you're starting to see outflows from international investing, and and for years they had inflows. Japan is one of those. Uh, countries that is a destination for this reimagining of global flows. And I believe that will continue in the years to come, especially as Japan adapts uh, a speedier trend in AI, in robotics, to lift productivity and to lift GDP. And that will reinforce the investing in these accounts by the retail investors that they're going to witness a long term positive trends in their investing. Thank you, Larry Fink, CEO of BlackRock and Keiko Honda of Columbia University. And now back to the Washington Post. And now back to Washington Post Live. Welcome back to our discussion of the global economy. For those of you who are just joining us, I'm David Ignatius, a columnist at the Post. I'm joined now by former World Bank President Robert Zellick. Uh, Bob, welcome to Washington Post Live. Thanks, David. Good to be with you. So let, let's get started. As the, the uh, clip that we just ran showed, the U.S. economy grew faster uh, last year than any other large advanced economy and is on track to do that again this year. So what do you attribute that to? What, what's the U.S. getting right uh, relative to other major economies? Well, the U.S. had a huge stimulus program, both fiscal and, and, uh, and monetary. Um, and that had some inflationary effects. So I think the real question this year, David, is this issue that Kristalina raised of, of soft landing, which is just a, a fancy term for the idea that the Fed has to try to lower inflation, uh, but without triggering a recession. And so far, so good. Uh, the inflation rate has come down to, depending on how you measure it, 25 to 4%. But the Fed had to really raise interest rates uh, on the short-term level, five to five and a half percent. And so the question now is, when can they start to lower? How fast? Uh, that's what stock markets are watching. And the Fed has to be careful because uh, in the past, it misjudged inflation. It doesn't want to do that again. As uh, you and I know, given our, our chronology, uh, there was a bad experience of this in the 70s, and the, the Fed uh, sort of recalls that. And so a good indicator of this is the U.S. had a very good jobs report uh, sort of last month. Surprised people. Uh, unemployment remains uh, quite low, about 3.7 percent. But uh, there was an assumption then the Fed would probably delay cutting interest rates maybe from March until May. So there's a very fine balance here uh, to be going forward. And as you discussed with Kristalina, you got global risks, uh, low economy, you got geopolitical risks commercial real estate market in the office areas. It's probably got vacancies that'll affect some of the regional banks. 
so uh, I hope it'll be a good year, um, probably not as good as last year, but we're kind of tipping on the edge here. So, uh, Bob, let's just look uh, a little more closely at, at the Fed and decisions that uh, Chairman uh, Jay Powell has to make. He said recently, we have said we want to be more confident that inflation is moving down, meaning to the target uh, rate of 2%, presumably, before he considers rate cuts. You've suggested that those may have to wait until, until May. Do you think that uh, Jay Powell is getting it right. He got a lot of criticism uh, from former Treasury Secretary Larry Summers, among others, uh, for misjudging inflation, inflation risks in the system. Do you think he's got it right now that he's proceeding uh, at an appropriate, uh, cautious rate? Uh, is, or is he, is he still uh, perhaps uh, too prone to, to, to be lenient uh, uh, with interest rates? So... So the answer is probably, uh, and and the reason why is you know, and probably probably what probably got it right, but okay. it depends on events. Um, the the last mile in terms of reducing those inflation rates, the as you mentioned, the Fed set a target of two percent. That's a pretty tough target. Some people have said, well, does it really have to be two percent? Maybe two and a half, three. The problem is created is one that Kristalina mentioned which is that markets look at expectation. And if they think the Fed's gonna be a little looser on inflation, well, that's gonna have negative effects in terms of people's confidence in the future and in interest rates on the longer side. So what you see Jay Powell and the Fed trying to do is capture the success they've had, which is no doubt quite impressive, but keep saying, well, we're not done yet. We have to keep pushing it. And this jobs report that I mentioned and that Kristalina talked about is very critical because what happens is in, in when you've had inflation experiences in the past, it starts to get baked into wage rates. And those get, you know, on the one hand, that's good for people, uh, but on the other hand, that starts to build in inflation expectation. And what you saw over the past year, David, is prices had gone up, wages hadn't gone up. Wages have started to catch up, and in fact, probably over the last few months, been a little bit higher than inflation. So the most recent wage increase was about 4.5%, and inflation is lower. And so what Jay Powell and his colleagues have to do is to figure out, well, will that start to stabilize and come down, or is that an upward trajectory? And you know, with your international experience, you talked about this with not only energy prices with the Gulf, but you had grain prices with the Black Sea, is a shock can, can sort, of, uh, sort of upset the, the, uh, the balance, as, as we saw in the 1970s with the oil shocks. So that's what they're trying to manage here along the way. And it occurs in an environment where, as you mentioned, Kristalina mentioned, US has been doing pretty good, China not doing so good, and China was a source of a lot of growth in the past. And Europe is sort of trying to come out of the difficulties, uh, but not there yet. So uh, Chairman Powell said another interesting thing uh, recently, especially given our current political debate. He said the U.S. economy has benefited from immigration, especially in, in the last year. I want to ask you your own views about the relationship between immigration and U.S. economic performance uh, and, and recent growth. And, and, and Bob, specifically, I wonder if you think our current uh, political fixation on border security is going to have negative economic consequences down the road. So, so this is a tricky one. So yes, immigration has been a plus in the past. And frankly, even some of the more recent numbers have shown that some of the immigrants, whether legal or illegal, has sort of helped with overall sort of consumer purchasing. But it's hard to maintain an open immigration policy, which I favor, uh, if you don't have control of your border. And so it, you get to this issue of, yes, the US favors legal immigration, but when you've got people flooding and people have a loss of control, it actually upsets the view. I mean, so you know, without getting into too many of the sort of the details, this recent border package, which was designed to try to secure the border, um, didn't have anything for the dreamers. And so these are the young people that came to the United States at an early age, have been working here, part of our society. 
All these pass packages have something for the dreamers. And what that indicates is that if the politics of the country see we don't have control of the border, then it's very hard to keep open integration, which is important. I mean, not only if you look at a lot of the tech companies in Silicon Valley, look at sort of how many of their leaders came from India or other countries. Uh, and you get the talent from Europe. So we draw talent uh, from the rest of the world, which by the way, helps our demographics compared with China or Europe, which are struggling. So uh, let me ask you to think a little bit with me about what I, I would say is the great mystery uh, of political economics. Uh, and that is given that by so many metrics, the United States is doing really well economically, why are Americans not feeling better ab about the performance of that economy? Help us understand why things are, are good, but they don't feel good. Well, I wish I had a great answer for that. I'm not sure anybody does. I'm sure various campaigns would like to know the answer to that one. But what you, there, I think there are a couple of things. One, um, people do react very negatively to inflation. Um, and we had quite an inflationary bout, not quite 10%, but getting very close. And you know, for the average person, you see that in your groceries, the gas prices for sure one sees it. Now we've seen the price increases come down, but the prices are still at a higher level and sort of people don't like that. Um, another factor, which you know quite well, is the, what the polls seem to show is uh, the bipolarization of our politics affects people's attitude. So Republicans are negative about the economy when the Democrats are in charge, Democrats are negative when the Republicans are in charge. There, I think there's some other factors too, which is you got a rate of change here where now people are uncertain of things they used to rely on, like a college education. Will a college education really improve uh, your, your living standard? Um, remember, for most people, their biggest asset is the home. And so, you know, you, depending on inflation and interest rates, uh, we've seen right more recently some challenges in the housing market. I think it's coming back, but it comes right back to this mortgage sort of rate issue. And if people feel they can't move because they don't want to lose their lower rate mortgage, well, then that adapts to the, the flexibility of the economy. So, you know, frankly, when you compare to the rest of the world, U.S. is doing pretty good. Uh, but no politician in their right mind is going to say, well, we're done well enough, that's for sure. So let's turn to a subject that you have uh, written, spoken often about, and that's the U.S.-China uh, economic relationship. This week, a, a group of Treasury officials went to Beijing for economic talks to try to prevent an escalation of the uh, trade tensions uh, that we've seen in, in the past. Um, I wonder what your assessment of the current state of U.S.-China economic relations is. And as somebody who's worried that China hawks are unnecessarily polarizing uh, debate, are you encouraged by efforts over the last year by the Biden, Biden administration to, to really have a fruitful dialogue with China? So David, let's break it into two parts. One is how's the Chinese economy doing and how's the US-China relationship? And they're of course, as you know, interconnected because the Chinese economy uh, has been sluggish. Uh, I think Xi Jinping made some wrong turns in terms of the nature of his reform. He, got, he started uh, actually following up on some recommendations we gave uh, at the World Bank in 2012, but then when the market sort of uh, was topsy-turvy in 2015, he focused more on security. He's focused more on industrial technologies. Um, and they have a huge real estate problem. So the real estate uh, market's 25 to 30% of GDP. And when that's in trouble with people not having finished the apartments, that affects people's sense of wealth. Uh, and so that affects their confidence in the economy. I think the private sector has been anxious. A lot of people have left. And one of the more striking things, David, since you talked about immigration, is that we all knew that China was going to grow old before it grew rich because of the one China policy. But over the past six years, there's been a huge drop in births and marriages in China. Um, it's below the rates of, of births during Mao's uh, sort of famines. 
So something's going on in terms of overall confidence. Now, at the same time, and this affects the international economy, in certain areas, such as uh, solar panels, uh, sort of wind, soon electric vehicles, China's gonna be quite an important export power. But the big change China has to make is moving from export-led growth to domestic consumption. So consumption in China is about 38, 40% of GDP. In the US, it's probably almost 70. So how can China sort of make that overall shift? So China's economy is stumbling. I think this has led the Xi and the Chinese regime to want to avoid conflict with the United States. And then turning to your sort of point, I think President Biden intuitively reacted that there was a downward spiral. It was get risky. We got enough problems with Russia, Ukraine, the Middle East, North Korea, uh, and others. And so I think what you saw over the past few months was some effort by both sides to put a floor under the relationship. And that's better than the alternative. But on the other hand, I think one has to sort of keep one's expectations modest here. There's still not much in the way of trust. As you know, the politics in the U.S. are very, very tough. So Biden doesn't want to look soft on China. So maybe we can make some advances with narcotics, fewer sort of military incidents and have sort of military to military dialogues. Um, you can see some discussions on artificial intelligence. But you, you referenced in the earlier segment the idea of a Cold War. I think that's a mistaken analogy because in the Cold War, as you know, the Soviet Union and communism was a separate system. And the U.S. and capitalism was an alternative system. And they didn't have a lot of economic contact except maybe in energy and some commodities. Um, China and the U.S. share a system. So the point is, if we're dealing with the international economy in the future, whether it's trade issues, investment issues, climate pandemics, you'd have to figure out some sort of way to work together. So I'm not naive about the nature of the Chinese regime. I actually got to know Xi Jinping relatively well, and I kind of saw his focus on the Communist Party. The question is whether the approach taken with Trump and Biden actually just increased dangers. Need to focus on deterrence and defense, need to work with your allies, but then what? And I think to answer your question, we're now at the stage of then what? So you mentioned uh, managing director uh, Georgieva's comments about the new Cold War. She had a, 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 a deeper point, or additional point, about fragmentation in the global economy. In, in a sense, she's talking about the evidence of deglobalization that many people have, have noted. What's your uh, feeling about about that question, whether the, the global economy is becoming more fragmented, uh, as we th think about nearshoring and supply chain difficulties, and what should we do about it? Should we, should we be worried about a more fragmented global economy? So the IMF has done some excellent research on it. And, and, and frankly, uh, you, you didn't cover this in your discussion, but they've done sort of a, a deeper analysis that looked at various alternatives that could reduce the world economies by either between one and 7%. 7% is a very big number. Um, and so there are different aspects. One, uh, when you have problems like we've had with, with COVID or some of the insecurities of supply chains, there's sort of a tendency to say, oh, we should produce this all at home. You can't produce it all at home. And ironically, the resilience and adaptability actually helps when you get these crises. You, you talked with Chris Kabina about sort of buffers. And just to give you an example from an area you've dealt with, um, Ethiopia relied on grain from Ukraine. So it got clobbered when that got cut off, but then it was able to get grain from Argentina. Even the face masks that we all wore for a while, two or three weeks, they were sort of cut off, but then actually China supplied those going forward. So you don't want to be reliant on one supplier, but frankly, you also don't want to add the cost of trying to do everything uh, at home in the process. It just, it, it, you know, frankly, one of the benefits of trade is you can get some of the efficiencies from what the other country is doing. So what does this mean for uh, situations today? Well, one the U.S. has to face is if we want to address climate change and we want to try to deal with, say, additional solar power, why would we put big taxes and tariffs on solar panels coming from China? 
Well, someone says we need it for national security. I've been involved in the national security field for 30 years. I still don't quite grasp why we need solar power in the event of sort of a conflict. So these are the tensions that you face in this overall environment. And as Kristalina uh, mentioned, frankly, it's the, the poor countries are gonna get clobbered most in this. What do you try to do? Frankly, this is where I think Biden and Trump have been aligned. They've been favoring more trade barriers in part for domestic political reasons. Uh, that's gonna cost the United States. It's gonna hurt the rest of the world. And in areas like digital, we'll fall behind setting the standards of the future. So it's unfair to ask this with just, we have under a minute left, but I wanna ask you if, if there's a big threat to the global economy that we haven't talked about, either in our conversation or with Kristalina, uh, that, that, that you think uh, our, our viewers ought to think about. What's one thing that really worries Bob Zellick? It, it's the accumulation of the items that you've mentioned. So the economics textbooks like to explain it's all rational. People are irrational. So when all of a sudden a number of things come together, whether it's dangers with Iran and the Middle East, whether it's Russia and Ukraine, and frankly, one reason why I hope we can have at least some working relationship with China is you don't want to add that to the mix. So market psychology, I think, would be it's moving in the right direction. I guess the one other issue which you touched on, David, is, you know, U.S. debt as a percentage of GDP is now 97 percent. The post-war peacetime high was 104 percent. Um, our budget deficit last year was six to seven percent, depending on how you count student loan sort of payment. And the CBO just put out projections. It's five to six percent as long as the as far as the eye can see. At some point, the chickens come home to roost. We the economy grew well because we spent a lot of money. But at some point, we're going to have to get the discipline on both the deficits and the debt going forward. And as your whole conversation is focused on the U.S. is the cornerstone of the system. If people lose confidence in the United States and its overall economy, then we're in big trouble. So let's clean up the U.S. deficit fiscal side, which nobody puts as a priority. And then this combination of international events that could shock confidence. So in some ways, I wouldn't use the Cold War as an analogy. I'd look a little bit more at 1914. Okay, that's not, not exactly reassuring. Uh, Bob Zuck, I want to thank you for... Uh, Great tour d'horizon of the global economy. Thanks for being with us on, on Washington Post Live. Glad you're back in the States, David. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.